from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Chapter 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Oh, Father God, tonight, with all honesty, we have to admit that we are focusing upon something that is totally beyond the ability of our human minds to comprehend. And yet, by faith... It is reality to us. And by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit that you've given to us, it is real to us. Our Lord Jesus promised us that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. And tonight, Lord, we would ask that that would not only be something that we accept by faith, but it's something that we even know in our senses tonight. May your presence fill this room in such a way that we will know that we are in the presence of the divine God, the divine God who loved us and gave himself for us. We submit our hearts and minds to you tonight through Jesus Christ. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world should be saved through him. Will you recite that verse with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Let's proclaim that love as we sing, Here is love. Here is love, bright as the ocean, loving kind as a flood when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood who his love will not remember who can cease to sing its praise and love like mighty rivers poured in sand from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed again
let me all thy love accepting love be ever all my days let me seek thy kingdom only and my life be to thy praise thou my glory nothing in the world I see thou hast cleansed and sanctified me thou thyself hast set me free in thy truth thou dost direct me thy spirit through thy word and thy grace my need is meeting as I trust in thee my Lord of thy fullness thou art pouring thy great Romans chapter 5. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having men now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Let's celebrate that as we sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that save a wretch like me I once was lost but now am found was blind but now I see twas grace that taught my heart to fear my fears relieve how precious did that grace appear the hour I first redeemed with perishable things, things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life, 
the life that you inherited from your forefathers. But you were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. John the Baptist, the day after he had immersed Jesus, saw Jesus coming to him, and John was surrounded by his disciples. And he said to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. None of us tonight can come before God and say, Look at me, I am worthy. Look at me, there's some great gift I bring to you. But we come to God as we are, rejoicing in His grace, just as I am, without one plea. Just as I am, without one plea, but that Thy blood was shed. start this evening by reading from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. The Apostle John wrote this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, we seem to live in a culture today where fame is everything. seems like so many people want to be famous. They want to be known for something. They want to be honored and adored. They want to be idolized with the accompanying riches, of course. How else can you explain the popularity of a television show like American Idol and the many other shows that it has spawned that are very much like it? The goal of these shows is to get famous, isn't it? To be known. I don't think it's any accident that they chose the word idol to describe this, as in many ways it's a reflection of our culture and the need of so many to be seen as important. Of course, we know what the Word of God says about idolatry. It's not unusual on the news to hear that some well-known personality from entertainment, business, or politics, or some other walk of life asks a question in a compromising situation which reveals their hearts. It might be the movie star who was just stopped for a DUI. Now, normally that would get you arrested. It might be a famous musician who was disruptive in a nightclub. That normally would get you thrown out. It might be a politician who just cannot believe that someone even has to ask for identification. For example, there was a story about 10 years ago, true story, there was a congresswoman who tried to walk past Capitol security without proper identification. When the security officer tried to stop her, she hit him. And she later apologized for her actions, but her initial attitude about this incident is typical of so many in our culture who have achieved stature or fame. How many times have you heard a story about some well-known public figure who gets into a situation where they expect some sort of special treatment and say something along the lines of, well, don't you know who I am? The idea is that they're so special that we're supposed to know who they are and treat them according to their status or their celebrity with some sort of deference or special treatment. This particular congresswoman admitting that she wasn't wearing the special pin that's supposed to identify her as a member of Congress was quoted as saying, the pin is not the issue. The issue is facial recognition. Tonight as we mark Maundy Thursday and the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, we see how Jesus turned this question, this question, don't you know who I am? He turned it completely upside down. Though we usually read from the passages in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about the Lord's Supper, tonight we begin with the passage from John. And I'd like to linger in these verses that we read just a few moments ago for a few more moments tonight before we do, as Jesus asked us to do that night, to share communion in remembrance of him and his sacrifice and his humble service. Let's notice some key points in this passage. First of all, And this is probably the key point that I want to get at tonight. Jesus knew who he was. He knew his sovereign authority. He knew where he came from. And he knew what he came to do. Three times in this passage it says that he knew something. And again, the key verse being verse 3. But John also made us a point to tell us that. The first time's in verse 1. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. In other words, it was all part of God's plan, and Jesus knew this. The next time, again, is in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew that he had come from God, and he knew that he was returning to God. He knew what was about to transpire, and he could confidently rest in the outcome. And the final time in this passage is in verse 11. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. He knew all about Judas' plan. Jesus knew that night that he was the King of kings and he was the Lord of lords. He knew that he was the Word made flesh. He knew that he was with God the Father at creation. So more so than any congresswoman, more so than any rich person, any celebrity, any business leader, Jesus had a right to ask the question that night, don't you know who I am? In fact, think about it. If you turn it around just a little bit, he kind of did ask the question, but in a different way with a different meaning. 
In uh, verse 12 of John 13, we read this. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, I am Lord. I know it. You know it. I'm in charge of everything. And I'm serving you. Do you understand what that means? So you should serve each other. If anyone, think about this, if anyone ever deserved special treatment, it was Jesus. He literally deserves our worship, not just special treatment, unlike the American idols that some people worship. But he turned that idea upside down. You know what? There's power in knowing who you are and resting in that knowledge. That was clearly true for Jesus, who was the maker of the universe in the flesh. He also knew he didn't have to prove anything. He was God in the flesh, whether he was washing feet like a slave or sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father. That knowledge freed Jesus to be nothing, to perform the duties of a slave, to pay the penalty for our sin, even though he never deserved the punishment that he took on himself for us. There's power in knowing who we are. And that's true for those of us who are in Christ too. Just as Jesus' knowledge of who he was freed him to act like a slave, knowing that performing the duties of a slave would not change in any way who he was, we too are free to be nothing. We too are free to serve. We're free to do menial tasks, not seeking attention, not seeking approval, not seeking fame knowing that God has already rendered the ultimate verdict for us. Not guilty. Not guilty. We are blood-bought, redeemed saints, His beloved children. And that's true whether we're preaching to thousands, whether we're running a major corporation, or we're cleaning toilets, or changing diapers, or digging ditches. In verse 4, immediately after noting what Jesus knew, We read this, so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What an amazing, incredible contrast. What a model of humility and service. Here's the maker of the universe, folks the one who flung the stars that we can look up in the night sky and see, stooping low, humbling himself, taking the role of a slave or a servant as he washed the dusty, dirty feet of his disciples. Now, Jesus' act that night violated the cultural norms so thoroughly that Peter couldn't stand it. He objected, didn't he? Now, washing feet may be difficult for us to understand because that event is rooted in a very historical context. Feet were washed like this in Jesus' time because they needed to be. People's feet got dirty as they moved about barefooted or in open sandals on dusty streets and roads. But it was usually a servant who washed people's feet. And if there wasn't a servant, it was often a submissive wife or child. Or you just did it yourself. But the point here is not the washing of feet. The point here is humble service. With his crucifixion imminent, what happens? Jesus washes his disciples' feet as the final proof of his love for them, setting an example of humility and servanthood, and also signifying the washing away of sins through his death. It was a striking demonstration of love, and not just for his disciples, but for his enemies, because Jesus washes all of his disciples' feet, including Judas. But it might be more helpful for us to think of something lowly and humbling that we might do today, something we or our culture might think of as demeaning work. By the way, there is no such thing. But we think of it that way sometimes, don't we? How about cleaning someone else's toilet? How about changing 
an adult's diaper. These would probably be a more ready comparison to foot washing in our day and time. And then the, let's add that other element to it. Not just the washing itself, but the one who's doing the washing. We might make a modern day comparison like this. Suppose the President of the United States shows up at your doorstep and says, hey, I'm here to clean your toilet. And suppose he doesn't even have a camera crew with him to publicize his humble service. Or we could remember this story, true story about a Wycliffe translator named Doug Milland and his wife who moved into a village of Brazil's Fulnio Indians. And he was referred to when they first moved there as simply the white man. The term was by no means complimentary since other white men had exploited them, had burned their homes, and robbed them of their lands. But after the F Milans learned the Folio language and they began to help the people with medicine and in other ways, they began calling Doug the respectable white man. When the Milans began adopting the customs of the people, the Folio gave them greater acceptance and they spoke of Doug as the white Indian. Then one day, Doug was washing the dirty, blood-caked foot of an injured Fulnio boy, and he heard a bystander say to another, who ever heard of a white man washing an Indian's foot before? Certainly, this man is from God. From that day on, whenever Doug would go into an Indian home, it would be announced, here comes the man that God sent us. Of course, we can't make fully adequate comparisons to what Jesus did because no one else is the maker of the universe. No one else is God in the flesh like Jesus is. When we lay down our rights and humble ourselves, we're only laying down what's already been given to us. But you get the idea, don't you? Here's Jesus modeling humble service in a way that his disciples could clearly see and clearly remember. And of course, so much of what happened that night, so much of what Jesus said, he did, and he said, for the express purpose of his disciples remembering. And his disciples are like us, in that we usually remember best what we see modeled. We remember best what we see as an example. I recall being very uncomfortable in the couple foot-washing services I've been a part of. Some of you probably have been part of that too. And it's just a little bit weird, isn't it? If we can just be honest. Jesus made his disciples uncomfortable too. So maybe all of us should be a little uncomfortable here tonight, not because we're going to have a foot washing, but because Jesus turned expectations upside down. The greatest among you is the one who serves. That's what he was teaching. And the expectations he set for his disciples on that historic night more than 2,000 years ago have not changed for us this night. The standard of service he set for them that night is the same standard of service he would have us aspire to on this night. Jesus turned the standards. He turned the norms, the expectations of the day, totally upside down. He showed them symbolically that head first wasn't important, but feet first was important. There were four reasons for the, this foot washing. First of all, to testify of his love for his disciples. We see that in verses 1 and 2. And to demonstrate, secondly, his own voluntary humility as it continues verses 3 through 5. Humility isn't humble unless it's freely chosen. Also to signify a spiritual washing. And then finally, to set an example for us to follow and for his disciples that night to follow. We need to remember that all of this occurred just before but at the same place where the events that we traditionally recall took place that night. Because later, that same evening, Jesus took the bread and broke it. And he gave it to those same disciples whose feet he had just washed. To those same disciples who had just witnessed this incredible act of humble service to them. And he upped the ante. He increased the stakes of service. He said, this is my body given for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, we need to remember that all these things were part of the same event. So when Jesus said, do these things in remembrance of me, 
he was clearly referring specifically to what we tonight call the Lord's Supper or communion. But it's important for us to remember, I believe, that the disciples must have still recalled what Jesus had just done for them, even as he was telling them what he was about to do for them. They had to be related in the minds of the disciples that night. Now, we call this day before Good Friday Maundy Thursday. The word Maundy comes from the Latin word mandatum, which means command. The command that this holy day refers to is the one that Jesus gave to his disciples during the Last Supper. So basically, Maundy Thursday means the day of Christ's great mandate. That's because a few verses later, past where we read at the opening of this message, after he had washed his disciples' feet in John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as, key words there, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus had shown them what love is. He had washed their feet. He had shown them that love is not self-seeking. He revealed to them by his actions that love is truly humble service. Charles Spurgeon once said that a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. As events progressed that night and then the next day, Jesus would continue to model what agape love truly is as he moved unshakably toward the ultimate example of love in the cross. Jesus made a statement in his model of washing his disciples' feet. He made the same statement in a stronger way in going to the cross. He said, I'm choosing, I'm choosing to make your needs more important than my stature. Isn't that what it means for us to humble ourselves? Don't care about fame. Don't care about even being noticed, really, except for the possible reason of modeling loving behavior for those watching us. We don't care if we get credit for what we do. We just want to serve. And in that service, we want to glorify God the Father. That was Jesus' heart that night. That's the example that Jesus set for his disciples and now tonight for us on that night. That's the model he gave us, and that's the kind of love he was referring to when he said, love one another just as, just as I have loved you. That's what we remember tonight as we come to his table of grace. At the end of the passage we read at the opening of this message, we read in verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. When God's promises are listed, we don't often hear that one. Here's a paraphrase of that promise that I just read in verse 17. Blessed are they who stoop and obey. Blessed are they who stoop and obey. As we pray this evening and in a few moments come to the communion table, let's ask ourselves which things we've considered beneath us to do. Maybe because we don't understand it, Maybe because we're too proud. Maybe because we're afraid of how doing this thing might change what people think of us. Or because no one will ever notice my amazingly humble service. Remember that washing his disciples' feet, stooping to serve, doing something he wasn't supposed to, quote-unquote, do, supposed to do, right? It didn't change who Jesus was. He's still God. So when we serve one another in sacrificial love, it doesn't change who we are in Christ. It just makes us more like Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing model of sacrificial service, of humble slavery, Father, that you gave us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that on this very night when we mark the Last Supper, your supper, your time with your disciples, that you gave them this amazing example of service and humility. 
And Father, we would attain to that ourselves. We would ask you, Father, to build in us a heart that doesn't care about being noticed, a heart that doesn't care about getting credit, a heart, Heavenly Father, that desires to serve others and in serving others, serve you and glorify God the Father. We're grateful for this, Father. And we think of these things as we come to your table tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, and we think of that great love that Jesus Christ has expressed so many ways, no greater expression than this one who was sinless, took the sins of the world upon himself and made us a kingdom and priests unto his God and Father. Lord, tonight, oh, Father, we do pray that as we come before you, that indeed you would put a mirror in front of each of us individually. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. We ask, Lord, for you to put the searchlight on some deep corner of the basement of our lives where dwells self, where dwells pride, where dwells all of those things, Lord, that refuse to allow you to be Lord, that rob us of the humility that you displayed when you washed the disciples' feet. Oh, God, we declare that none of us is perfect, but in your eyes we can be perfect because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Thank you, Father. And so, Lord, tonight we remember Jesus Christ said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Really, you have no part in me. We pray that by faith tonight, Lord, the unleavened bread will be to us as the body of Jesus. The fruit of the vine will be by faith unto us as the blood of our Lord. We stagger, stagger as we think of the immensity of that. But, Lord, we're also thankful that tonight, as Paul said, we can proclaim your death until you come again, and we do that each time we participate in the Lord's Supper. And because we believe with all of our heart that Jesus Christ did pay the price for our sins, and we confess our faith in that as we do partake tonight, we know heaven is guaranteed to us because Jesus Christ has guaranteed it through his atonement. Thank you, Lord. Through Jesus, amen. I would ask at this time that Elder Troutman, Sullivan, and Bertanen would come to the foot of the cross. in which he was betrayed, Jesus took unleavened bread, the unleavened bread of the Passover, and broke it. And he said, this which is broken for you is my body. All of you take and eat of it. And so my brothers, in obedience to Christ,
as the Passover meal continued, to the very end, the fourth cup, the last cup of the Passover meal, called the cup of the blessing, Jesus took that cup, and we can picture him as he lifted it up and said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. It is the covenant. 